What is going on, everybody? How we doing? I have the hiccups. So for the second time today, which is <gasps> fucking insane, um, I was doing DoorDash because I'm a DoorDash deliverer, and I was having hiccups in this kind of tall room with tile on the floor waiting for the food. Uh, and the woman behind the counter like brought me a glass. <gasps> fucking shit a glass of sparkling water and she was like oh i think this might help with your hiccups and i I don't know if it did or not but it was so nice i love sparkling water for anyone who knows maybe it was the sparkling water that caused it because i had some right before i had the hiccups earlier and i'm having one right now and just when you think they're gone they oh ah Okay, well, I I do just want to get out of the way because uh, this uh, is just a great interview, great conversation that I had with uh, a mentor and friend of mine, uh, Chris Sampson, who, among many other things, started the uh, popular music program at USC. If you've ever listened to this program before, if you ever, oh my God, if you've ever listened to this podcast before. You've probably heard me allude to this music program, uh, whether it's because I went there or because that the person that I'm interviewing just got to power through it. The person that I am interviewing either went there or was going there at the time of the record. Anyways, uh, so this guy started that program and uh, in large part, I think brought popular music to higher education and um yeah uh he was my songwriting teacher for many years and uh has kind of shepherded me and my friends uh into our various music music careers and i'm just need to scream into a pillow to release all of this frustration so without further ado here is my uh convert that I had with Chris Sampson at his home in Eagle Rock. Uh, and we were drinking coffee, and it was like the late morning, early afternoon. And uh, it was a really nice time, and I want to cry because I'm so sad about these hiccups. And I love you, everyone. Um, uh, if anyone wants to see the Nova Darlings, um, we're playing a show with Oku Doxage and uh, Truesdale and uh baby a at the lexington on may 11th so come check us out and uh yeah uh here's the podcast love you guys Chris Sampson. Mackin. How's it going? It's going good. Really good. We're in your house. We're in your house. Welcome. Home studio. Welcome. In Eagle Rock. So great to have you, man. Heck yeah. It's great to be here. Um, yeah. We got headphones going. This is the most production value 
I've seen for. Uh, yeah, I, I threw up a comforter against the wall. That's oh, yeah. that's the production value. <laughs> What's that comforter cost? Hundred bucks? Damn! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no expense spared. I put that in my rider when mm-hmm. I texted Chris about his podcast. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm curious, like, how you start your days, you know? Like, what's your, do you have a morning routine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, for me, it's all about um, coffee. Mm. Coffee is, like, a big deal. So that's the very, yeah. very first thing. When are you waking up? Um, 6.30. Whoa. Yeah, not, not, not insane. Used to be, like, the insane, you know, 4.45 a.m., 5 a.m. kind of thing. And I loved that. That was actually when I was at my best mm. and I was doing a lot of work and everything. But now, 6.30. Um, That's wild still. And, you know, I'm a family guy. Yeah. So it may seem mundane, but I love it. Um, I, every morning, I take my daughter to school. Yeah. And we take the dog. Mm. And so the dog uh, is walking with us. And, uh, you know, my daughter lets me walk her to school up to about two blocks away. Oh, and then she and then she goes. It. That's enough, Dad. <laughs> you know, so she wants to be that independent, mm. walking herself to school kind of thing. Right. And um, I have to say, it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's the best. I I it's these little things of me taking my daughter to school that I'm, you know, I get thrown out of whack on those days that it just doesn't happen. You right. know. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, so that's, that's my morning routine and it's simple and it's suburban and it's, it's mundane and, uh, I, I couldn't value it more, man. It's, Mm. it's just the best. So yeah, this is Ruby. Ruby. How old is Ruby now? She just turned 10. Hey, that's awesome. Yeah. Double digits, man. And what's this dog? Who's this dog? This dog is Pino. Pino. Pino is very special to me. Pino's my, uh. Um, he's new to the family. Okay, but we got him uh, during my recovery, which yeah. we'll probably talk about as, as part of all this conversation. Heck yeah! And so he's kind of my therapy dog during recovery. Mm. And so, and he's a he's a shelter dog, but he took care of me, mm. so I owe this dog. So now that he took yeah. care of me, I take care of him, and oh. basically I take care of him by just. Boiling the crap out of him, so he he kind of leads a pretty luxurious life. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's he's a, an important dog for me. That's so sick. Yeah. And so you have the walk to school, and then you have a walk home. Do you do like headphones on the walk home? Or are you like listening to anything? You know, I, I don't. A lot of people sick. ask me that. You know, a lot of people ask me sort of like, what is the music I listen to in the car? What do I what do I listen to while? You know, doing those kind of things. Because right. they, they assume that since my life is in music, that I'm constantly listening to music. Right. And sometimes I feel guilty that I'm not constantly listening to music. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that during my formal work day, I am bombarded by music. I mean, yeah, it feels like, I don't think it is, but it feels like thousands of tracks are getting thrown at me all the time. Mm-hmm. People wanting to play me songs, people wanting to listen to these songs with me, and that it, it becomes part of my work day. Right. That when I'm kind of out and about or in my car, it's silence. 
Yeah. Um, my This is embarrassing to admit, but my radio in my car has been broken for 18 months, and I've made zero attempt to fix it just because I dig the silence. Yeah. I dig that space <laughs> where I'm in traffic. I'm actually cool with rush hour and everything, and I just yeah. I hang, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm with myself at that time. Right. And uh, my ears are fried from everything else. And so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'm, you know, if that makes me a, uh, a bad human being or a bad musician or what. <laughs> it sounds elevated from my perspective. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that then because <laughs> I, I wrestle with it. It's just like, oh, I should be listening 24-7. I should be writing. Yeah. There. And um, I think I come to stuff a little fresher maybe. Mm. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Hard to tell. I, I'm just, I, I guess I'm just following my own instinct. Yeah. My instinct is to keep it quiet. Yeah. And uh, preserve my ears. I'm a quiet dude to begin with, so right. I like just kind of be myself. And then when it's time to listen to music, it gets all my energy. It gets all my attention. Right. So, uh, and I can never do, um, I can never listen to music as background right. music. I, right. I just, I, I don't know, it's not my DNA. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a disappointing answer, I think. You no. Because it's kind of like, ah, no, I don't listen to music. <laughs> well, some people do audiobooks, you know, some people do podcasts. and Yeah, I, I do a little bit of that. I I like being quiet. I like being in the moment. Yeah, I wish I did I'm, more of that. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Mm. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm really comfortable with that and kind of prefer it. Um, um, particularly kind of emerging out of the the previous job that I had. Right put a huge demand on me from just people coming at me from all angles. I had to hear people. I had to listen to people. They were just coming at me all the time. Again, not a complaint. It's right. just the nature of it. You mean Vice Dean? Yeah, when I was Vice Dean. Because um, you're answering to 500 students and 75 faculty and an yeah. administration. And um, it's a sensory overload when all of these people are coming at you. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a tried and true introvert. I am... Mm-hmm. I, I, me around people just sucks my energy away. Right. It just does. Yeah. And I need I need my time to yeah. kind of refuel. I think that that's maybe more what this is. Mm-hmm. I need my time by myself to refuel. Have you always known that about yourself? Uh no. You know, I, I, I think it I think it took a while for me to understand that about myself mm. and to be comfortable with it because you know, once upon a time I, I was a performer. Yeah. Considered myself a performer mm. and um, thought that I had to be out there, you know, Mr. Entertainment all yeah, the time, that kind of thing. For sure. And um, was then really concerned with like the toll it was taking on me. You yeah. know, it was just it, before it was, a show, after a show. Oh, man. And also my reluctance to just do it. It's like, I don't want right. to, I don't want to do this. It wears me out. It's just, it's, yeah. Uh, and again, felt very conflicted because I was like, wait a second, mm. this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Why are you reluctant? Why right. is this so hard? You what know, age was, is this approximately? Um, hmm, my whole life? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, this was um, when I was really starting to um, come to grips with it. Right. was in the early 90s mm-hmm. when I had, had an act, I had my songs, had some interest, yeah, you know, from from some record labels and was Chris Sampson the name of the project? It was, yeah, it was. I, I was in a band called Cynic Guru, which uh, I, I found out is 
I'm even mentioned on their Wikipedia page. So oh, that, really? yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. I think it said like Chris Sampson left the group for artistic differences or something. It was awesome. So yeah. Um, <laughs> is that that's not a band that you started, or is it a band that you it started? Was a ba- it was a band I co-founded with a partner. Okay. And um, our sort of writing aesthetic and our vision for the group just went two different ways. Mm. And also, um, uh, I was starting to, you know, people coming up to us at shows, a couple, you know, industry muckety-mucks and A&Rs and whatnot Mm. would say, hey, I'm not so interested in the band, but can we talk? Can you and I talk? And I was like, oh, hmm, maybe I got something else going on here. And that fed my ego enough to go, heck, I can just do this on my own. Mm. Um, I feel like that's a classic moment in like oh, yeah. rock documentaries and oh, stuff yeah. when they're like, you're the one. You don't need these other guys. <laughs> I had that moment. I had that moment. <laughs> and it was to my detriment. It was all it was, mm. it was. all ego, but I learned a lot during that time. But yeah, yeah. It, during that time, it was like... Who's um, your partner? His name is Roland Hartwell. Mm. Um, incredible violinist. As a matter of fact, I think... He's still uh, the section violinist for the Icelandic Philharmonic Orchestra. Whoa. So he picked up the band and moved it to Iceland, and they had some success. They, I think they had a, a, a few hits. Really talented guy. Um, just not a guy that, you know, we, we had a, you know, our chemistry just kind of ran out and, and, and everything. But, but yeah, we weren't partners in the true sense. It was like he had his mm. songs, I had my songs. Ah. And that doesn't really work very well in a band because, you know, then we're kind of saying, well, we opened up the last show with your song. Now we're going to open up this show with my song. Right. Um, You know, you rehearsed your songs more than my song. So it it kind of got down to Mm. that stuff. Right. Um, And uh, yeah, so it just ran its course. Yeah. And um, But yeah, it was around that time where I was like, oh, this might be getting real. And uh, I was kind of... I don't know, I found myself a real reluctant recording artist, a real reluctant, mm. um, I don't know, artist, period. Yeah. And I was, I was like, I had to psych myself up to do this. And then I kind of just had that conversation with myself, like, maybe this isn't for you. Mm. You know, maybe you're a behind the scenes guy. Mm. And, uh, you know, those those are hard conversations to have with yourself. Yeah. And I think I was in my mid to late 20s, so I didn't know who the hell I was anyway at that time. So I was still sorting that out. Right. But yeah, the the project really didn't didn't pan out. There was, it was very disappointing, you know, when you get looks like everything's rolling and the record labels on board and all this and then it's like nothing. You know, nothing comes from it. Mm. Period. And so it was a bit of a kick in the stomach and again because I was so reluctant, I just didn't have that pluck to go and kind of go, that's all right, I'm going to do it again. I was just like, screw this, you know, I'm going to yeah. go to Nashville and, and uh, try my luck there, maybe behind the scenes. And so that's, that's kind of what triggered that move. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's been in my later life that I've kind of have been able to put a label to my introversion, you know, to learn sort of right. what that all means. And um, man, that's been really helpful. Because mm. I've definitely learned that being an introvert doesn't mean that I can't get up in front of people. Right. You know, I feel very comfortable doing public speaking. Yeah. Um, I, you know, on the rare occasion when I still do perform, I'm, o- I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, and all that. I just need to shut it down. I just now know 
mm. what I what I you know know about myself is that afterwards it's just like I'm done, you know. And I've come to find out that that's not unusual. There's a lot of big artists out there, right? Certainly not suggesting I'm a big artist by any means, but there's a lot of big artists that have the same DNA. They 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 know how to be extroverts on stage, mm. and then you know got to shut it down, got to refuel. Right, get inside their heads a little bit, mm. and that's where they need some solitude. Yeah. At the time of the Cynic Guru project, did you find that as an introvert, you were more lit up by being in the studio and that kind of stuff? It was all so new for me at the time mm. that I didn't know what lit me up yet. Ah, I was still discovering it. Right. Um, I didn't quite have the same access to, you know, we didn't have the same, now I'm sounding like that old guy, back in my day, we didn't have the same home recording equipment, which we just didn't, you know? And so, you know, we were lucky to pull off anything that was halfway listenable as a a home demo. Mm -hmm. We're just, you know, so I didn't know. I I guess at that point I was just like, I'm not, I know I'm going to have a life in music. Mm. I just don't know what it is yet. Right. Um, you know, uh, and so 20s are like that, man. I was, I was, I, looking back in hindsight, I was just, I was, I was figuring it out, man. Whatever, yeah. whatever pathway was kind of still presenting to me. And I was, I don't know. I was, I was figuring it out. Yeah. So I didn't have a preference. I'm sorry. Again, no. not a great answer, but are, if I'm being real honest, that's it. The fact that they're honest makes some great answers. Mm. And I appreciate that. Um, just on silence and stuff that we were talking about earlier, are you a meditation guy? Are you at all? Is there any sort of spiritual practice that underlines your life? You know, the quick answer is no. Yeah. I'm not uh, a formalized meditate, you know, scheduled, you know, right. to do it on a daily basis. I have, I, I've, I've certainly, have done it before and have benefited from it. I have found that one of my personal strengths is my ability to be in the moment. Yeah. And I found that um, that's just a, an asset for me. Huge. So I don't know. You can call it meditation if you'd like, but it's also I'm really comfortable mm. with the idea of not, in most cases, we're all human, right? But, I mean, in most cases, not letting... The, the the past kind of like occupy me and really not worrying about what's ahead of me. Yeah. I'm really pretty good about staying. And that has its, you know, staying in the moment yeah. and it has its pros and cons. Mm. Um, you know, the pros are that it's, it's, um, helps you sort of look at things pretty objectively as they come by. It's like, huh, that's interesting. That's what's yeah. happening now. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, but my wife is a planner. Right. Thank God for her. You know, because <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I don't. Right. I, I, you know, I don't look, you know, five minutes ahead of me. Right. And she is a planner. Mm. And without her, I don't think I'd function in society very well. But it also drives her nuts. She has no idea <laughs> how I live my life, you know. Right. And it's just a complete mystery to her. Um, uh-huh. You know, I do things like, on my way to the airport, I'll go, oh, yeah, I need a rental car. Yeah. And I'll just get a rental car in real time at that particular yeah. moment. 
and she, and she it just baffles her. She's like, and you and it, she goes and she goes and you never. It never negatively affects you. Like, there's always a rental car there for you. There's always a hotel. And you do it just like in real time right at the last text. And I go, yeah. That's, yeah. that's when I thought about it. That's when I needed it. So, yeah. So, Hell it's, yeah. like I said, it's got its pros and cons. Right. Um, well, that's the goal of so many of spiritual practices, presence, you know? So, if you feel like you're already in that lane, you know? I, 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 I it's a, yeah, I do a lot of times. Again, we're not, um, I, you know, I'll have my share of, of moments where I was, you know, be anxious about something or another. Yeah. And that's being human. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely have found that somehow, somewhere along the line, mm. either maybe through my accumulated experiences or whatever, I, I've got this strength where I can kind of just slip into this mode of, here we are. Right. Right now. It's all good. Great. Yeah. Leave it at that, you know, so... So, um, no, you know, maybe perhaps if I did a bit more structured meditation, it would be even more at my fingertips, but eh, I'm good. Yeah. I'm all right. (laughs) When did you meet your wife? Um, let's see. Been married 13 years. Heck yeah. Um, and I knew her for a, a few years, um, prior to that. And I knew her professionally first. Mm. So I was actually doing admissions at USC for the School of Music. Mm -hmm. And she was doing admissions for USC in the main admission office. Okay. So I'd have to interface with her as we coordinated admissions. So I got to know her professionally first. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, got to to know her very well through all that. And um, yeah, and then, then I moved. We moved to my my current wife, uh, my wife at the time, and I decided to move to Milwaukee mm-hmm. and um, get it just kind of a change of scenery, new new thing, which was probably not a great idea for me, but I kind of followed along and it's like, uh-huh. okay, Milwaukee, let's do it. Let's, mm-hmm. You know, so I was trying to put a brave face on it. Right. Um, but we got divorced while I was in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And um, divorce is very clarifying, you know, mm-hmm. very, very, very much, uh, uh, again, a really great opportunity to sort of go ask yourself, what, what are your values? Mm. What do you want? What do you don't want? It was, it was very clarifying. Right. How Pain, long had painful. you been together, if I can ask? Yeah, seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Seven years. Um, you know, if I'm being real honest, flawed relationship from the very, very, very beginning. Got married too young. I got married at age 24. Mm. which in my opinion was too young, or at least I was too young for it. Right. And we just, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't, uh, shouldn't have happened in the first place, <laughs> I mm. guess. Um, but a change of scenery was certainly not going to change the dynamic of that relationship. So we moved mm. to Milwaukee and we still get divorced. Right. And now I am a long ways away from, I was homesick for Los Angeles, so I'm a long ways away from home, uh, divorced and cold because right. it's in February. <laughs> In, in Wisconsin. In, in, in Wisconsin. And, uh, but it's, it, like I said, it's super clarifying because. Is um, Milwaukee in Wisconsin? Yeah. Phew. Oh, yeah, God. dude. You're right there on the lake. <sighs> Nailed okay. it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Geography <laughs> points. Hello. <laughs> That's what this podcast is actually <laughs> secretly about. It's me slowly learning in cities and stuff. Please continue your yeah, story. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> 
Cool, 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 cool. I can go through all the places I lived just so that we, you know, educate you on the various regions of the United States. Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles, California. Got it, got it. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, yeah, but so. So you're cold. Cold. Divorced. Divorced. Far from home. Woke. Woke. And I was like, you know, I know who I want to be with. Mm. And it's as unromantic as hell. But I called Beth, and she's in Los Angeles, and I said, "Look, I, I know who I want to be with, and it's you." So can we talk. Can we talk about that? Um, and you know, maybe that comes across as either pushy or whatever. But I just knew. Whoa! It was really, I had a, I had, I could visualize us together. I saw it that yeah. we were going to be together. Yeah. So I hope I wasn't too. I don't know. I, I don't think it came across as demanding or anything, but I, mm. I, I just was like, you know, I know who I want to be with. Yeah, I think that's romantic as hell. Well, okay, well, <laughs> you know, it, but yeah. you know, and she was not so sure. She was just like, right. wait a second. Well, you're in Milwaukee. I'm in L.A. Had there been any sort of spark or? Oh yeah, mm. sure. <laughs> so, so I mean, no, it didn't come com- completely out of thin air. Right. We obviously acknowledged. That, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, it was definitely one of those, okay, well, maybe this just isn't the right lifetime. Right. Go on with your life. Right. I'll go on with mine. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe next lifetime we'll get the Mm. awesome chance to be together. Right. we kind of had that, maybe that that desperate, unrequited love thing going on. Um, But I just, I don't know. I wasn't up for that. I wasn't up for that. Yeah. So once I was kind of divorced, I was like, I want to be with you. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Fuck yeah. And um, she uh, she goes, well, there's one problem. I'm in LA and you're in Milwaukee. And I, I'm such a smart ass. I go, last time I checked, planes fly between LA and Milwaukee. <laughs> like that should have that should have probably <laughs> given her a clue. You know, no, I'm not going to get with this guy. But you know, we we committed to it. We just yeah. were like, okay, we're going to make that happen, and we're going to see what occurs. Did you do long distance? We did, but it wasn't it didn't wasn't for very long, you know. Because mm. then I got the call from USC going, "Hey, we need you back." Mm. I'm like, "All right, karma, karma speaking to me." Yeah. Um. Uh. I. I. I needed to. Um. My career was not going to go anywhere in Milwaukee. It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm not. I'm a divorced dad so i've got to take care of my financial obligations just went through the roof right with that decision so i was like oh man i need a i guess i had my oh shit moment i was like oh shit right what am i gonna do yeah and you know i don't know karma faith uh luck and i got this call to come back to usc where my career could actually grow and build i could take care of my family i could take care of all this and i could be with beth yeah and here we are yeah so yeah yeah it's a it's a it's it's a lovely story i think um mm. okay and she's awesome yeah hell yeah how many kids did you have at that point i had two mm-hmm. two awesome boys liam and aiden yeah and they were really super young when i got divorced mm-hmm. um liam was 18 months and aiden wasn't even a year so they don't know the difference. They really don't know 
what it's like to have mom and dad together. So mm-hmm. it's they've kind of grown up with this dynamic, which has been weird. Right. Um, you know, I ended up having to make the choice of being a long-distance dad, mm-hmm. which, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it was the right decision. We'll, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked really hard at um, making sure that I had a, have a relationship with them. I, I flew to wherever they were every three weeks. Mm. Constantly commuting back and forth. Yeah. They came to Los Angeles, you know. There I was, you know, with two basically toddlers, you know, going through the airport, security and everything. Um, yeah. And uh, we worked really hard to make sure that it was, it kind of stayed a family. And it it did. Yeah. Um, and yeah. now they're 17 and 16 years old. And uh, amazing kids. They're being teenagers, so yeah, awesome. <laughs> but yeah, that was you know life decision number one. It was like yes, great luck intervened, and I was able to move back to L.A., which was a pivotal moment for me to sort of take care of this blended family. Right. But the choice was also going to be, uh, you know, it's going to have to be a long distance dad. Right. And, um, yeah, it, it, I, I, w- I would be lying if I didn't say that emotionally that didn't take its toll, you know? Every time you fly mm-hmm. out there, hang with them, and then fly home. Right. That, that flight home, just, you know, you felt hollow. You f- just felt, you know, you know, wondering what the hell did I do, you know? Uh, right. And then as they got older, they were, they were able to basically articulate to me either directly or indirectly, that it was all okay. They're fine. They're okay. And uh, That's so awesome. that little sort of self, I don't know, self, uh, you know, abuse, I was giving myself through the whole thing, mm. uh, you know, dissipated. Right. Uh, you know, a bit. And we've got this, again, wonderfully blended family. Once we get all the kids together, Beth's son, my stepson, and we had Ruby together, so we got four of them together, and they just like pile in like you know puppy dogs. They're just they're they are a family. They are, they consider themselves brothers and sister. It's completely yeah. seamless. So yeah, I kind of feel like we we achieved it. We, That's awesome. You know, all things yeah. considered. So you but, think about the flip side because um, there are certain parents that find themselves in flawed relationships and stay there. You know. And to the emotional detriment of everyone around them, we couldn't have done it. It, it would we would have been a horrible example for our children, a mm. terrible example for our children, mm. um, because it was flawed is a kind word. It was dysfunctional, you mm-hmm. know. And again, human beings are just human beings. How how you get in these dynamics that are fundamentally dysfunctional, and you know, let yourself be in them, and all of those kind of things. It's like one of the mysteries of the world, right? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Mm. but we would have not been doing them any favors. So yeah. I definitely believe it was in their best interest yeah. for us to to move along. Yeah. Um, and certainly not saying that that's universally true for every relationship or every kid, because I, right. you know, this is nothing for me to speak lightly about. People 
that's an emotional thing for people, you know. For sure. So, so I don't, I definitely yeah. don't want to kind of hold this up as like the example that everybody should follow. You know? <laughs> that's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> With the word not in parentheses <laughs> ahead of time, not the example everybody should follow. For sure, for sure. Um, how many, do you have children and, and or stepchildren um, with Beth? Yeah, Ruby. Yeah. Yeah, we had Ruby together. Nice. And uh, thank goodness it was a girl. I don't think Beth would have had it any other way. You know, I, I this is now really getting deep into the detail, but I, I didn't think I was capable of making anything other than boys, you know? <laughs> and so when she got pregnant, she just kind of looked at me with this desperate look on her face and she goes, it's going to be a girl. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, honey, we can hope for the best. Um, but, you know, we might need to, you know, manage your expectations that it might be another boy. And you could look at her. She was like, no, this <laughs> is going to be a girl. Mm. So I give her credit to willing that to happen <laughs> right. and thank goodness, you know, because yeah. man, boys have a certain energy, love that energy. Right. But yeah, fourth boy and a fourth bundle of that energy. Mm. Yeah, we were done mm. with that. So And the third boy is Aiden. Aiden. Okay. Aiden, my sixteen year old. Okay. Yeah. Aiden's crazy. He knows more about music than you or I put together. Yeah. Um from a like a from like almost like a a music journalist blogger's perspective. Mm. Um, he's he's played some music. Yeah. But man, does he get into every deep cut, every release. He knows um, the whole nuances, you know, B-sides, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, he's he's just amazing in that way. So yeah. I look to him to keep me up to speed on stuff because he'll, he'll right. start talking over my head really quick. It's like, <laughs> wow, I had no idea about all that stuff. Yeah. So, did yeah. Beth have previous or children from previous marriages? Yeah, Casey. Um, so okay. that's my stepson, and he's about to turn twenty. Yeah, in college, playing baseball, having a great time. Great kid. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. How has fatherhood, like, over the years, been? You know, having a twenty-year-old and a ten-year-old. Um. I love it. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, from very early on, I have always wanted to be a father. Mm. I've always, you know, I think you know me that I've always kind of had this mentoring and nurturing chip yeah. in me. So, and the ultimate in mentoring and nurturing is definitely fatherhood. So, yeah, I'd always seen myself as 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 a dad, you yeah. know, in that way. But being a stepfather and being a father are two very different roles, mm. really different roles. And here comes FedEx guy. FedEx guy. Oh, but he just threw it on the patio. Cool, cool. All right. Um, sorry, you can edit that one out oh. or not. <laughs> um, I'm interviewing the FedEx guy. After okay, this, good. Actually, yeah, so. well, he's gone. So oh, he's, he text. wants no part of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, I there's an there's an art to both, right? And stepfathers being a step parent is that incredible balancing act of allowing the two real parents to sort of step forward and make sure that they are the presence in this kid's life. Mm. 
and you are a supporting member. Right. And that is a very delicate balance, you know, because, you know, they might be doing stuff that you're like, uh, can I comment on that? Can I contribute? And you can't. Mm. You cannot. Right. Um, or you can't in a certain, you know, right. you, 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 there's a way of, of being able to contribute. Mm. So with Casey, that's my stepson's name, I just decided to lead by example. Mm. And, you know, my wife was like, I, I just want to make sure that he knows how to um, behave and treat women properly. I want him to be respectful. I want him, you know, she, she has these very fundamental goals for him. Mm. And I thought my job was to lead by example, for it to show him, at least to the best of my ability, um, that this is how we interact with people. Right. But I never lectured him. Yeah. Never talked to him about it, mm. you know. But where, where my sons, I actually feel like, hey, I can sit you down and go, okay, look, dude, this is actually what needs to happen here. This is what I expect from you. Right. You know, I can have a bit more of a conversation. That yeah. Way. Um, but no, I had a great example with my dad. My dad was awesome. And mm. I just, you know, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's been a great uh, experience. And I guess threading back to our earlier conversation, talk about a great way of staying in the moment. When you have kids, you got really no choice. Right. Because like, <laughs> you have no idea what the hell is going to take place. Right. You know? Right. So you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, okay, well, that yeah. happened. Yeah. Awesome. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it helped in that way. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, you grew up in Washington, D.C.? Just outside. Okay. In, uh, Continuing our, our geography lesson in <laughs> Northern Virginia, in Alexandria. Cool. Um, yeah, Northern Virginia. Cool, 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 cool. Did you have brothers and sisters? What was your kind of early childhood home life like? Um, I did have brothers and sisters. I got two older brothers and a younger sister. Okay. And um, my early childhood... Three boys and a girl. Three boys and a girl. Similar lineup. Just like what we have, exactly. And... Um, my childhood, um, the best the way I could call it, was just stable and supportive. Mm. My dad came from a very unstable upbringing. Mm. Um, divorced parents ended up in various foster situations all over the place, you know, that kind of thing. And I could almost tell. It's like my dad was going to, like, make a stable home life for his kids. It was, it was definitely in reaction to his own upbringing. Right. You know? Right. And uh, he did. And they instilled the love of music in me very early on. Mm. Um, Were they musicians? My mom was a music major at the University of Idaho. Yeah. For, I think, you know, two semesters until, you know, theory two kicked in. And, you know. <laughs> um, but they both, they, they actually met in choir. Oh, uh, cool. So they both sing. Nice. I have a great time doing it. And we started a family band. So when I was growing up, my two older brothers, uh, first one learned to play guitar. Rob learned to play guitar. My next oldest brother learned how to play bass. Eric was on bass. My dad would play guitar. And for me, it was like so natural. I'm eight years old. I wanted to join in on that. So right. I was like, hey, you guys need a drummer. I'm on drums. Yeah. So we ended up with this little family band, and they had you know, this eight-year-old on drums. Yeah. And we got okay. You know, We probably should have probably kept it in our basement, but we, we did get out and play some gigs. 
And it was more of a novelty because they had this eight-year-old on drums, you know. So it was kind of like, look, yeah, it's the kid on drums, you right. know. Um, drums got pretty serious, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Afterwards? Yeah. I'd say that, that was probably my, uh, I, my primary instrument, even though I just loved it all. At mm. one time, I was playing seven different instruments, including oboe. You know, I was like, I just, Whoa. I could definitely tell that I wanted to be in music and it just didn't matter what was in my hands. Right. You know, it just didn't matter. Mm. But I definitely found myself in the role of, of drummer in a fairly serious rock band all the way through high school. And um, what was the name of the group? Oh, it's a terrible name uh, uh, called The Rest. Nice. I'll just let that sink in. <laughs> Did you name the band? I can't remember how the name. You named the band. <laughs> <laughs> I deny it. I, I deny it. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, I, no, I have no idea. I really don't. But we obviously weren't, th- we, we clearly didn't work hard enough on right. that band name. Um, but yeah, it's a long string of bands and bad names. Um, mm. I was in this one band, just as an aside. It was a heavy metal band. I was playing bass and nice. um, Sunset Strip and all this hair and everything. It was great. <laughs> I want to see those pictures. The band. <laughs> and this wasn't my project. I was kind of like, you know, the side man. Sure, 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 sure. But the name of the band was Never Again. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I thought, you know, that's just good advice we right sh- there. It's just never again should I be in this band. <laughs> Oh man! If there are never again T-shirts out there, if there's not, um, we should make some. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, let's maybe a reunion tour or something like that. Oh, did you man. have? Did you have like? I had the hair, dude. Yeah, I had hair, man. Um, went all the way down to like the middle of my back, and nice. Yeah, those are good times. Good times. Um, Heck yeah! And those, you know, yeah, photo exists here and there. Um, um they shouldn't. Those photos shouldn't exist, but that's, you know, hey man, it was cool at the time. Oh, I, yeah. I thought I was cool. Yeah, and of it was, And even though I wasn't, uh, I don't know, wasn't necessarily a heavy metal guy, I had a great time. I mean, how yeah. fun is it to just get up there and just, just go nuts in this band called yeah. Never Again? Yeah. So, yeah. I never thought I'd talk fondly about Never Again, huh? <laughs> Huh. You're you're bringing out all kinds of things here. <laughs> and then you went to SC for college. I did. Um, uh, the one thing I should mention, though, is I um, I went to Duke Ellington High School for the Arts. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Where you studied guitar? <sighs> yeah, I studied guitar and upright bass. Oh, so shit. again, I couldn't. I couldn't. Right. Uh, I couldn't decide, nor did I care what was right. in my hand. So I was a I was Duke Ellington's first double major, Hell yeah. majoring in guitar and double bass. So that means I had to do two senior recitals in the same week. Mm. Um, and then on the weekends at night, I was touring around a little bit of touring up and down, you know, beach cities and things like that as a rock drummer. So I had all three going on. Right. I loved it. Um, but the reason that I thought it was important is, is that that school of the arts experience I don't know. I don't want to get over dramatic, but that probably came pretty close to saving my life because I, yeah. I went to a regular public high school for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know, I knew I had to do music and I knew, again, I don't know, mix in the introversion or whatever. I was, I was outcast is too strong of a word, but I was an mm. uh, outsider, you right. know, in a lot of ways. Didn't quite fit in. And it was depressing. You yeah. know, it was depressing. My grades were 
in the toilet and were you um, depressed? I was. Yeah. Now now that I'm again got the vocabulary and right. got the yeah. got the wherewithal to actually know um what it was. Right. Um, because then, you know, at that time that's part of the problem. I had no idea what I was dealing with. Yeah. Um so yeah, it was it was a hard, really, really difficult time going through just your good old tried and true public high school. I took both music classes, choir and band. Yeah. And none of and neither more, you know, of interest to me. Right. So Duke Ellington School for the Arts is a big deal for me. A yeah. really big deal. Yeah. Um, so really taught me the importance of like being around like minded people. Mm. Knowing you're not crazy. Mm. Knowing you're okay. That mm. was a big deal. Yeah. And then yeah. Then yeah. I, you know, yeah. Picked up my guitar and faked everybody out and passed my audition to get into USA. Oh, there is a great story. You ready for this story? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, this was only revealed to me years after I graduated because everybody was so embarrassed that they couldn't tell me during the time. <laughs> so how they did auditions back then was by cassette tapes. Yeah. I lived in DC. I couldn't fly out to LA. So I sent a cassette tape. And of course, it was all done on paper applications. So there was no real sophisticated way of capturing demographic information whatsoever. Mm. So the guitar faculty got this tape and this application from this kid and they're looking at him and they go, oh, he's from Duke Ellington School for the Arts, which is indeed predominantly a black high school. Yeah. I am not black. Um, but they looked at this and then they, for some reason, I don't know why they said this again, we, we can read into this all you want, but they saw my last name, Samson. Mm. And then they just went to that conclusion. They, they were like, all right, we, we just recruited, uh, I think, our first black classical guitarist to the program. Right. This is great. And so I showed up the first day. <laughs> and I do remember everybody looking at me with this just stunned <laughs> look on their face. And I'm like, wow, what, what's going on? Do I have something between my teeth? I'm, you know, huh, this is really curious. Yeah. And everybody, you know, everybody kind of calmed down. A little while, but it wasn't until like after I graduated, five, six years afterwards, somebody had to come admit to me, you know, we actually thought you were black. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know what to say. Uh, sorry. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, right. So, yeah. Um, so that was my, my introduction to USC was they, mm. was they thought I was a different race. Um, but that's okay. Came out all right. Yeah. And, uh, I was in over my head, in over my head. I was basically a self-taught classical guitarist. Mm. Had no idea what I was getting myself into. I didn't know that existed, self-taught classical guitarist. I just, um, I had, uh, you know, Duke Ellington School for the Arts was awesome. It was yeah. fantastic, but they just didn't, they didn't have a classical guitarist there. So anything I did, he just kind of was like, oh, it sounds good to me. Right. But he, I, he couldn't comment on my technique. He couldn't comment on like what I was mm -hmm. doing. And I went to some other lessons at the local music store, and mm. and again he was like, "Oh, you want you like classical guitar? Here, just play this, play this, play this." And mm. I just would learn it. Yeah, but I would learn it any way I could. So, what my, got you excited about classical guitar? So, my older brother Eric was a role model for me. Right, you know he he was the he was the prototypical rock star in the band that we were in and everything. I just did whatever I thought he would want me to do because he was that strong of an influence. Right. And he went away to college and he took a beginning guitar class, which was 
uh, classically based. Uh-huh. And he came back and he played this silly little exercise that blew my mind. I was just like, I can't believe you can do that with the guitar. That's yeah. just incredible, you know? So I, yeah, at that point, you know, yeah. I had to do it. Yeah. Um, and I just figured it out. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, there's a lot to be said for figuring it out on your own, but also... Uh, man, I had no foundation. I showed up at USC so ill-equipped. Mm. had no idea what I was doing. And um set me back a little bit. I was like, you know, that realization like, oh, mm. uh-oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, no. Yeah, it was oh, so intimidating. It was, it was not only intimidating. It was like, uh-oh, what am I going to do here? Right. Um. So, yeah, I spent my first couple years just trying to catch up trying to get you know um up to speed and right thanks that i had these great teachers studied with bill cannon scott Tennant, a lot of the guys from the la guitar quartet jim smith great teachers kind of took me from zero literally zero mm. into a respectable guitarist yeah and and you know i'm a good i'm a good student i'm a good rule follower it's like tell me what to do you know and i'll I'll practice my ass off. And I did. I practiced, you know, really diligently. Mm. And I became okay, you know? Yeah. Uh, It it was, I I became uh, respectable. Yeah. You know, I I, I had a good tone, um, nice phrasing. I had all of those things. I'm not a fast player. I wasn't one of those virtuoso lightning quicks, you know, guys, but it was musical. Yeah. And that got me lots of gigs, actually. Yeah. Um, So I did all right. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was, yeah, uh, a bit of an unexpected experience for a rock drummer to do classical guitar. Yeah. And then, of course, on the side at night, I was playing in this band. Yeah. So kind of bringing it full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing up in D.C., so you mentioned Duke Ellington was mostly black. Was your also, like, neighborhood you grew up in mostly black? No. So I, I grew up in, you know, suburban D.C. So okay. Northern Virginia was very suburban. Okay. Um, but that was the other thing I sort of discovered about myself is I was far more comfortable in the city mm-hmm. than I was sort of in suburban life. It was very nice. It was nice. Yeah. But I really liked the energy of the city. And yeah. so that was the other thing that Duke Ellington sort of allowed me mm-hmm. access to was I felt far more connected to going to the 930 Club and yeah. um, going to the Bayou and Georgetown and all these places that were sort of landmark to D.C. Yeah. I felt way more comfortable there. Yeah. Did that energy, did you find that energy in L.A. when you moved to L.A.? Uh, that, you, it's very different, right? Very different. So, you know, I mean, I've never been to D.C. Yeah, so you know, I was super comfortable in East Coast cities. Put right. me in New York, you put me in Boston, put me in D.C. I can get around, I'm comfortable jumping on, you know, subways and walking and all those things. As a matter of fact, coming to USC was a very last second decision. I had a scholarship to go to New England Conservatory Mm. and I was all set to go to Boston. Yeah. It was at the last second that my guitar teacher said, well, if you're going to do this, you need to actually go to USC. Right. And I completely withdrew my scholarship and registration from New England Conservatory and went to LA. So the first time I was ever in LA was two days before my... The semester started my freshman year. I'd never been to LA before. Yeah. And yeah, it's extremely different. I mean, just the the vastness and how people operated and how people got around. And in DC, 
current events and politics was sort of at the top of everybody's, you know, talking points. And that's what we lived. We lived through those sort of, you know, current events. Yeah. And then you come to LA and the priorities on the entertainment industry and that's where people's attention was. And so it was just, it was completely different. And I do have to admit, it probably took five or six years before I was like, okay, I think I understand this town. I think, <laughs> I think I may have figured it out, you know? Right. It took a while. Yeah. It took a while. What was happening musically in DC? Was there like was the kind of punk hardcore punk stuff? scene? Punk scene was was what it was known for, and um, uh, a hip hop scene that was better known as go go music at that time. And uh, so I was kind of on the fringes of both of those right. things that were going on. But bands like Fugazi, mm-hmm. uh, Henry Rollins was in DC at the yeah. time, and to this day, I am almost positive that Dave Grohl and I lived parallel lives, you know, because he grew up in the exact same area that I did. Oh, yeah. He and I are the exact same age. Wow. And when I read biographies or things like that, he's in the same subway stops as I am. He is <laughs> playing the same clubs I did. Right. I just have to be kind of on the blues side, and he was on the punk side. Mm. But it's almost impossible that he and I either didn't share a bill right. or were in the same... I don't know, vicinity of each yeah. other. It's almost impossible. I By think. blue, do you mean music or blues. political? Yeah, no, no, oh, blues. blues. Set. Okay. Yeah, no, we, we, the band I was in kind of wanted to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. Cool, cool, cool. Nobody had told us that Stevie Ray Vaughan actually already has occupied that job yeah. and did it very well. Um, but we <laughs> wanted to be the next yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan band. And I knew that Dave was in the, in the punk scene mm. there. Um, so, it was funny. We must have been like, you know, on the some yeah. same subway car right. at least, you know, at some point. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was that was kind of the DC scene. Um, right. And go-go music was... was and both playing drums. Uh, yeah. Or were you playing guitar? No, I was playing drums. Nice. I was playing drums. Um, uh, and go-go music, you know, that was my kind of early introduction into rap and hip-hop. It was really different. You know, the, it was uh, band-based, you know, right. not track-based. Um, there was sometimes a turntable, but it was... they. The band would play this this groove, this funk, and then they, the MC wouldn't necessarily rap, but he was almost like a commentator, you know, right. kind of just like calling people out and giving people shout outs. It was almost like kind of a hype man sort of thing. Yeah. But I'd go to these parties in DC and it would be this just ongoing go-go music where, you know, tunes would last 50, 60 minutes, you yeah. know, because it was just a jam. Yeah. And the MC would just sit there and call people out and get people's hands in the air and everything. Yeah. It wasn't rapping though. You know, it was, very, it was a different mm. thing, but that was my, that was my kind of my early introduction to them. Were the punk and go-go scenes pretty separate? As far as I could see. Yeah. 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 I think it was, was it Bad Brains? Bad Brains was, it was mm-hmm. a DC band. Yeah. We can check me on this, but Bad Brains was a DC punk band at the time that was all black. Yeah. And that was kind of like one of the few, at least that I noticed. Right. Were they immigrants? You know, I should. Know yeah, this. I don't know. That that's a Googleable yeah. moment. Yeah. Let's Google that and find <laughs> out. Um, but I, I have to say that you know, being in the blues scene, we kind of had our own thing going on. Right, right. And if I'm going to be honest, maybe a little snotty about it. You know, it's yeah. like oh, that punk stuff. You know, it's straight that's ahead. That's nothing. You right. know, we play the real music. You know, we're we're. I was young. And didn't quite, you know, know how to right. appreciate all of those yeah. things. So I mean, I kind of missed out a little bit, but I did mm-hmm. know that 
Fugazi was happening around me. And right, I, you know, I right. did know that. Um, it's interesting looking back. I feel like punk, in many ways, is thought about as like a very white genre of music. And it's oh, so definitely. it's so fascinating to me how that kind of DC hardcore scene, which from what I understand was like very integrated, um, or was it? Was it not? That's what I understand. You know, yeah. the shows that I got to at the nine thirty club were were definitely integrated, but at the same time, I also I guess I just kind of took it for um, granted as the landscape in DC. Right. Because, Did that shift when you got to LA? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, everything shifted when I it got was, to LA. It was the nineties. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but when I got here, I got introduced to to hair metal. Right. I wasn't used to that. Right. And we would, you know, the Sunset Strip was just like, you go down there and that culture was, uh, it was unbelievable. You'd walk down and just, I mean, the hair, the hair was huge, guys in makeup, you know, it was just, it was its own culture kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very different than, than D.C. Yeah. But yeah, D.C., you know, for me, it was always kind of like, well, you got, you know, DC residents, and then you got your suburban kids, and we all go to the nine thirty club, and we all made noise, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um. So, so I guess I took it for granted. I wasn't necessarily looking at it through the uh, lens of sort of this um, sociological kind of. Right. Huh, we're, that's a integrated sort of audience <laughs> here, you know. I was just I was right. the kid that just took the subway in, right, and you know paid six bucks at the door. That's all I did because it was an all ages show. Yeah. So, Hell yeah, um, you know, and then, yeah, definitely we got here in, in, I got here into LA and my freshman year roommate was one of the best heavy metal guitar players I've ever seen. I'm sure he still is. Um, giving him a shout out. His name is Chris Arvon, A-R-V-A-N. And when I saw him play guitar, that was like, oh, again, one of those, oh shit moments. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't even touch this guy. He was so good. Yeah. Um, as one of the just virtuoso shredders you know yeah 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 so he introduced me to this this metal scene that i never sort of knew about certainly i i, I don't know i can't say i was into the music but the culture was was so <laughs> um funny i guess i mean you know, there's so much hairspray and all yeah. this stuff do you ever uh, hear of a, either bands called tko and or the bang gang no okay never mind no Moving forward. no but that that that, that <laughs> Those sound like bands I would have been in because, you know, again, yeah. bad, bad band names. But right, no, right. I haven't. No, he was in a band called Racer X. Mm-hmm. And Racer X was a legendary LA metal band that kind of stayed local. But Paul Gilbert was their virtuoso guitarist. He's, he's still very well known today. Paul left the band and Chris Arvon took Paul Gilbert's spot. And it was exciting to kind of kind of see it. Again, wasn't my style of music or anything, but I could tell it was signature to LA. It was really sort of, um, yeah. it was, um, I guess it was our sound, you know, yeah. at that particular time. Yeah. And then Guns N' Roses came and kind of killed the hair metal and then Nirvana just killed it dead, you know, so that, and then it went away. Right. Yeah. Were you in LA during the Rodney King? I was. In the riots? I was. What was that like? It was um, surreal. It was surreal. I was in my apartment, and you're watching TV, and you're hunkered down, and they had maps showing where the fires 
were encroaching and where they were developing. And mm. you could locate my apartment on the map and see everything start to kind of get on fire around it. Yeah. And I wasn't living near SC at that time. So this was my senior year, first year of graduate school. So I was living in um, Highland Park Yeah, um, at the time. And um, it, was, it was emotional, you know, you're, well, you're watching your town kind of kind of go through this insanity. And you, I, I, I have to say, maybe, you know, I couldn't comprehend it all at the time. Of course. So I'm not sure why everything's on fire at the time. Yeah. So it was really confusing. And then after a few days, um, I ended up going back to campus and the National Guard is rolling through the streets. So down by the USC campus on Hoover and Jefferson, there's Whoa. tanks and um, armored cars, guys with, you know, assault rifles. Whoa. It's the truth. Who was the president? Was See, it, it was 90... Was- uh, 92. Was it Clinton? Yeah. Yeah. Let's Google that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Google that stuff later. Yeah. And that, I'm that pretty sure it was 90, 92. 91 or 92. Um, yeah, I was here. And um, honestly, it's one of those events that you have to have some distance from to actually understand. Yeah. I have a very limited understanding. Yeah, of it. The, the sort of the underlying dynamic yeah. of police at the time, the black community at the time, um, the oppressiveness at the time, how O.J. Simpson factored into it at the time. Right, right. Um, there was all this stuff that kind of knit together that while you were living it in real time, you couldn't quite know that it was at least I didn't, making mm. this combustible mix that was just going to explode, you know? Yeah. And so it's back in hindsight when you go, oh, yeah, I remember all this stuff getting put together and, you know, yeah. the way the police were acting, you know, and it gives rise to um, NWA and, and, you know, all of a sudden they're responding through music and you can yeah. now, you know, when you look back at it, you go, oh, I get it. Now I understand how all that sort of you know, fit together. Yeah. And I understand why people were so, I understand why there was that kind of anger where yeah. in real time, you know, I can't, if you would have asked me and maybe not would have been able to tell, wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly what was going on. Right. For you know, sure. I would have said, oh, they're, they're upset about, everybody's upset about this court case. And so we're rioting. Right. And that was like, that was the tip of the iceberg as, as right. to what the issue was. Right. I remember so specifically the day that in the forum class that you were hosting, when you had the documentary about those riots in forum. And that was such uh, an important moment for me. Oh, good. um, To have a like social conversation. Well, also just to learn about LA, um, but also in that class, like, um, yeah, to have a social conversation that like really woke me up to a lot of stuff Good. and like allowed me to engage in a dialogue with people I was going to school with. I'm glad. I'm glad. I didn't, I didn't know how that particular class was going to come off. Yeah. And I thought know, it was important. I thought it was really cool. I thought it was important too, you know, and, and, and I really wanted people to zero in and understand like, this is us. This is where we live. This, right. this didn't happen in some far off land that, you know, you only read about 
This is like, this happened here. Yeah. And I didn't overtly say this, but I kind of wanted to say, and you know, the conditions are really still in place. Right. You know, we're still, we still have, and as a matter of fact, income inequality, and there's a lot of factors that have actually pulled this, even strained it further. Yeah. Particularly in this town. Yeah. And... You know, that's that's why I wanted to present it. Yeah. And I'm so glad that at least you, I don't know if how many of your classmates at least got the larger context of why I wanted mm. to bring that because it also mixes it mixes together with art. Yeah. And it mixes it together with music. And music was the social commentary at that time. Right. And um it it was and again, maybe I didn't appreciate it in real time because it was so crazy. Yeah. But um afterwards I was like, Oh man, this is this is this is important. We have to learn from our past here. We have to learn about all these levels of yeah. things that kind of got put together. Yeah, for sure. And as a as a white person who grew up in a pretty white area, like I, that was very educational for me. Good, you know. And I think, like, especially in our program where we're playing so much music that was pioneered by Black Americans in a city. Like, like we wouldn't be doing what we were what we would be doing without the cultural impact of black America period. yeah, yeah, you know, and um, I've always wanted to make sure that that was understood, right uh respected, and that we never never dodged around, you know uh, yeah it was, it's like look this is this is where where what we do inextricable from yeah. the yeah, the conversation just doesn't go past go mm. uh, without them. But I do have to say that on, on a bigger side of things, it's because of these challenges why I love living in this particular city. Mm. I want to be in the middle of the challenges that we all are talking about. Like, I don't want to sit there and go, wow, that income inequality sure is bad for people over there <laughs> in that other place. And, right. you know, I... I I, I want to be in a city that actually ha- has deals with those challenges every day. I want to wrestle with those challenges. Right. I want. I want to. Um, if I don't wrestle with them directly, at least I'm engaged with them. Mm. And uh, that's what I've come to value about this city. Is actually, you know, not the not so much the positive stuff. It's like, yeah, we can talk all day about the weather and all of those types of things. I like the friction, man. I like the. I like the. I like. The, the being engaged with the challenges um, and it being put right in the middle of it. And, you know, I certainly don't claim to want to step in the middle and like solve everything, but I also don't want to be on the outside looking in. Right. So uh, I, I just say that that's what's, that's what's now kind of convinced me that, yeah, this is a good place for me. I like this yeah. place. I'm curious what sort of the, um, like what sort of uh, social themes came up in the construction of the pop program um, and the curriculum and like building a faculty and things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because so much of the material is tied so directly to pop culture and just sort of like the world that we find ourselves in now. Right, right. I don't know if it was, if if there was necessarily like the sort of this conscious um right. influence there mm-hmm. because for for again for me it was just so mm, um 
Uh, it was. It was. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, you can't can't go around. You know. Yeah. The fact that our unique American music was made by working class immigrants, the lowest rung of the social ladder, um, under awful conditions on both the white and black side, coming together to kind of create this incredible fusion of music that creates this uniquely American sound. Okay, now make a pop program. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, you just start there. Understanding that that social dynamic is is what created this music. Mm. From there, I had to actually reverse engineer and kind of think about, okay, but how was that music learned, disseminated, and performed? Mm -hmm. Because what I didn't want to do was then just take a completely academic approach and over-sanitize it and right. strip the life out of it. I would, that would kill me because this music means too much to me. Right. So the, the, the big thing was to acknowledge that blues, Appalachian folk, hillbilly music, all of these different traditions were passed along through an oral tradition, mm -hmm. right? That's how people learned it. Right. That's how people performed it. It was performed in a way that it was part of their DNA, it was in their bones. And I thought, that's what we got to do. Yeah. That's what we have to do, is, is that we have to honor the fact that this music is communicated differently. It doesn't live on a sheet of paper. Right, as opposed to trying to make it more of like a classical approach or something right. like that. Right, and that's where I benefited from my classical approach. I right. could see, the, okay, that's that approach. Again, no judgment. It's fantastic. It's like I am interpreting a composer's intention through the the series of black dots on a page. Mm -hmm. And I'm an interpreter. Right. That's my role. Um, and of course, I could compose my own music, but mostly my role was as, as an interpreter. Right. Where in pop music, our roles are communicators. Mm. We are bringing people together, and that music is... Um, is as natural to us as, as speaking. It has to get there. Yeah. And that was a real hard sell in an academic environment when I was trying to kind of pitch this program and yeah. kind of go, well, here's what we need to do. And they're like, well, wait a second. Are you telling me that there's going to be no music stands in this class? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm telling you. No, <laughs> we can't have music stands in this right. class. And this is a music school that's been around. And like, oh, yeah, for 130 years. Yeah. And they're all looking at me like, oh, oh man, he's, he's ruining the school of music, you know? <laughs> and I got that a lot. I got that a lot. Um, that's so badass, man. That's just cool. Well, I, it, it, was, it, it was, for me, I just had to drill down. Because yeah. it would have killed me to have the negative effects of what's happened to jazz. Mm. Jazz in education has had a mixed um, mixed outcome. If you really want to ask me, yeah, my my honest opinion. You didn't you didn't ask me, but here's my honest opinion. Um, and I think schools are now starting to get away from it. Right. But when jazz came into the academy, it was also met with great resistance. You know, you can't bring this stuff into the academy and right. all these types of things. And how jazz responded was actually taking a classical approach and sort of superimposing on jazz. So it's like it has this canon, and here's how you improvise, and here are the scale, you know, right. and here's how you do this. And it um, it had this un unintended outcome of a secondary genre that was called school jazz. Mm. And so you'd hear all the time that there was two genres. There was real jazz, and then there was school jazz. And mm. I was like, oh, that hurts. 
Right. You know, because to create something that lives outside or different from the actual art form right. or, or s- separate from it would have pained me. Right. So if we ever get to a point where there's such a thing as school pop. Right. You know, there's real popular music. Yeah. And then there's school popular music. I'll I'll cry, you know. <laughs> I, it'll be, you know, I hope that's not the case. Um I'm kind of set on a mission to wave that flag whenever I go to a conference, whenever I talk to anybody. It's just like let's make sure right. that we do this in the way and in the spirit of the music and the way it's learned and communicated. Please don't put charts up for a James Brown tune and, you know, we read it from a piece of paper. That's not, it's just not going to happen, right? Right, right, Um, right, right. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm fighting the right battle or not, but it's really important to me. Yeah, I think from my, I mean, for for what it's, uh, from a student's perspective, uh, it certainly is, you know, and it certainly has just, I'm just extremely grateful for all of the thought and energy that you've put into making a place for me and my friends <laughs> <laughs> to build Man, lives. I gotta tell you, it's been, it's been, I've gotten more out of it than you. Mm. So, well, I can almost just leave it at that. There's, this turned out to be uh, far more than I expected. Yeah. Uh, I have ended up, you know, I don't know, just, just, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I'll get emotional talking about it, um, watching what you guys have done with it. Because all, you know, all I did was put the conditions there for you guys to do this. You did it. You put it together. I just needed to kind of put the construct in place. Mm. So I get a lot of credit, but at the same time, it's like, if you guys would have screwed it up, (laughs) we would have gotten nowhere, right? So, <laughs> you know, and especially, could you imagine that first class that was coming in? Yeah. We didn't know what we were doing, you yeah. know. Um, well, I take that back. We knew what we were doing. I just didn't know right. what was going to happen. My class had like Brian Jones out there. Yeah, you guys, being you cool. guys were on on board. <laughs> you guys were on board with yeah. with what was expected. You guys knew it, so right. we were already going. But that first class, we were like, we didn't know what was going to happen. And I do, if I can admit to you, um. So we had our very first midterm showcase for the very first class. Yeah. And it was at Ground Zero on the USC campus. Nobody came. I think there's 12 people in the audience. You know, compare that to like, you know, the 300, 400 that show up at midterms now. You right, know? right. I think like 12 people were in there. And if I can, if I can admit, it was terrible. Mm. It was awful. And uh, it wasn't the student's fault. It right. was it was just us trying to kind of put this together. But I, I walked away from that that performance thinking I made a huge mistake. I, I made a huge mistake by championing this program and now I've got this these kids that I'm responsible for and and it was just oh and I just I was really deflated after that midterm. Mm. And, but, you know, picked myself back up and was like, okay, I'm going to wrestle this thing. And so I was like, got with the faculty. I was like, okay, that was terrible. Let's see what we get. We, this is what I expect. Here's what I want. Here's the outcomes and everything. I had to like course correct everything right. as we went. Cause again, I didn't know what to expect. But yeah, that first midterm, I was just like, uh oh, oh no. I have, I've just ended my career. I've made the worst mistake of my whole career. 
And again, not the student's fault. It wasn't right. the student's fault. Yeah. So, yeah, it didn't, it wasn't all like out of the gates awesome. Right. As a matter of yeah. fact, it was out of the gates stumbling. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at that first class. That first class, I won't name drop them, but I mean, they've, they're incredible. They've right. gone on to do amazing, amazing, amazing things. Yeah. But man, we were, we were figuring it out together. Yeah. That's inspiring to hear. There are like 10 million sort of things I just want to ask you about. Um, and I know that our time is limited yeah. and I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you about this experience that you find yourself somewhat on the other side of, um, which we touched on briefly in our conversation in your yeah. office the other day. Yeah. You said cancer was awesome for me, <laughs> which blew my mind. Right. Um, can I ask you about getting sick? Yeah. Yeah. And we can talk about it. And I don't know if this will make the air, but one of the side effects is I have to drink too much water, which makes me go to the bathroom. So we're going to come back after oh, I go to yeah. the bathroom so we can actually have this conversation. Sure. Yeah. That shouldn't make the air. Do your thing. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to cue that one up again or <laughs> it's up to you. I thought so hard <laughs> about how to gracefully transition. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was... No, there's, cool. no, there's nothing graceful about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine that, that talking about cancer like stops people in their tracks a little bit. It's a conversation killer. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I'm just like, hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm you know, in the middle of, uh, of, of uh, throat cancer. Silence. I mean, right. Nobody knows what to ask. Right. Nobody knows what to say. And you're just like, you're just like... Uh, uh, sorry about that. I just, you know, wiped out the conversation. Do you want to get a rag to, to oh, well, it's a, a little coffee? This is, trust me, this, this, this carpet has had more than, you're fine. <laughs> I'm you're, sorry about that. No, please. No, please continue. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's a difficult conversation for everybody. And I definitely realized that I could make people uncomfortable very quickly mm. <laughs> by saying, yeah, yeah. How's it going today? Oh, good. You know, just got done from radiation and chemo, you know, and man, nobody wanted to hear that. Such an odd predicament because I can imagine that it's already such an isolating experience. And then to feel like a, it would be a burden to share that experience. Oh, I, I, I guess I didn't feel isolated again. Well, that's good. I, you know, I got, I had love and support of family. Mm. I'm really good by myself, which is good. Right. Uh, you know, this, this talk about having an asset of being in, you know, being able to be in the moment. Yeah. Man, cancer treatment is the time to be in the moment, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that was my, that was my coping mechanism was it just like, I'm just going to experience this for what it is right now. Yeah. And I spent three months being right here, right now, experiencing what throat cancer was like. Mm. And that's all I could do. And that was a real asset for me. That really yeah. helped out. Because I never, I don't know, never even really thought about what was ahead, why this happened. It was just like, hey, well, I'm going to experience this. Whoa. And I'm going to experience it through its challenges and through its pain. Yeah. And through, you know, experience the... the um, uh, side effects, all of those things. We'll just yeah. we'll just check it out. How about we just check that out? Okay, we'll check that out. You know, that's it. That's how I dealt with it. How did it get discovered? Um, was it through symptoms? Yeah, or? yeah. So, um, 
I had a definite lump on my neck mm. and um, was starting to get some additional symptoms like uh, almost flu-like symptoms, you know, kind of feverish and those types of things, uh, earache. So it was kind of coming up the side of my neck and uh, uh, stiff jaw, you know, stuff like that. Mm. And so I was convinced that I had a, a lymph node infection, an infection in my lymph node. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll just get some antibiotics and we'll take care of this. Because it definitely felt like, you know, it was kind of flu is like an infection. Right. So, yeah, me being Mr. Self-Diagnosis Doctor, I was like, take myself to my primary care person. I said, hey, I've got an infected lymph node. Yeah. Can you just give me some antibiotics? We'll just deal with this and I'll be on my way. And she looked at it and said, you know... I'm going to send you to a specialist. I was like, all right, whatever that takes. Okay, let's go. So yeah. I went to a specialist and they put a camera down my throat. And I'll never forget how matter of fact this doctor was, which actually was really reassuring. He goes, yep, there it is. And I go, what? He goes, yep. That. So you've got throat cancer. That's the tumor that's at the base of your tongue. I can see it right there. There it is. So we know exactly what we're do- dealing with here. And I'm like, okay. All right. That's the moment. So I guess it's not an infected lymph node. So, uh, and he said, that's what it looks like, but we'll do a biopsy, which was a full-on surgery, uh, surgical procedure, just to confirm. But it was like, it was was really just kind of like, okay, and here's how we do this, and this is what happens, and okay, and here we go. And I go, well, I got some travel coming up. He goes, no, no, you're not going to be able to travel. And so, and... Like I said, it lacked bedside manner. There was no emotion to it whatsoever. <laughs> and But it was so reassuring right. when somebody was just like, okay, this is what we have. Here's what we're going to do. Okay, let's go. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess, okay, here we go, you know? Yeah. So it was actually, gave me confidence that they, that, you know, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. Mm. And um, coming home to tell my wife was a different thing. Right. You know? Because that she, uh, my wife and my kids were probably more, way more emotional about it than I was. Mm. Matter of fact, I, I don't remember ever actually getting emotional about it during the diagnosis or the treatment. I never really, yeah, no, I never got that. I never sort of, you know, the oh, why is me? You know, I never felt that way at yeah. all. Did um, you think about mortality? Um, no, I didn't. I don't know if that makes me like weird or what that wasn't part of that would to me it was just like here's how i viewed it yeah is and again this goes to gratitude and grateful i i was ready for a challenge yeah isn't that weird (laughs) i was ready for a challenge that's fucking sick (laughs) it's weird it's so weird because i i i had in a cool way i met the chain yeah okay (laughs) not like gross yeah um I'd met the challenge at work. I'd yeah. done I'd done my thing at work. And I kind of felt I kind of felt like that challenge had been met. Now I was just maintaining. Mm. I was just maintaining things at work. And I have to say, I'm just not cut out for that. I hate the day-to-day maintenance of stuff. I just it's not who I am. And I don't do it well. Right. I always want to change shit. I always want to just do something different. And that drives everybody fucking <laughs> bonkers, you know. 
quests. Yeah, I just, that's the way I was like, I just want to screw it. It's like, okay, this isn't good enough. Let's just change all of it again. <laughs> and everybody everybody at work is like, Chris, we can't change again. You know, they were just, they yeah. all, everybody got fatigued with me. Right. We just got used to the last change. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so I knew that like my time of, you know, changing things around was done and now I was just in maintenance mode. So my challenges had kind of been met and I was pretty uninspired, I got to say, by not by the students, not by what we were doing, but just kind of like just the maintaining the day-to-day. I was uninspired. I needed a new challenge. I knew I needed a new challenge. So when I got the diagnosis, I was kind of like, well, I guess that's my challenge. That's the challenge that I was supposed to have. I didn't know it was going to come in that form. Right. But it's time for me. Great. Okay. Here's the challenge. Let's yeah. do this. Let's yeah. make this happen. Um, so I never thought it or thought about it in the in the in terms of survival, not survival. Um, like I said, they gave me a great prognosis. So they never gave me anything to really be, you know, they they said, "Oh, with this type of cancer, they did say it was stage 4 because it spread." That's all that the various stages means. It's okay. how far it spread. So it did spread into my lymph nodes. It did spread around and everything. But stage four isn't necessarily like a death sentence. It just means that it's spread. Okay. Um, but they're like, yeah, we treat this, and uh, your prognosis is about 85%. I'm like, shit, I'll take that. That's awesome, you know, uh, as opposed to if the throat cancer came about because of smoking or, or uh, mm-hmm. alcohol, the prognosis was not good. Mm-hmm. And so um, mine was not smoking or alcohol-related. And so the prognosis was good. And so I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do this. I I clearly needed a challenge. Let's do this challenge. Yeah. So that's how I I went into it. So it wasn't ever ever a there was never a weepy. Right. What was me? Life is unfair. Never. It just never happened. Huh. Um. But it was emotional for my wife and yeah. for my kid because they you know it's no fun watching somebody that sick can't get up off the couch. Right. That's no fun. And so I almost felt more like a burden. Um, mm. But quite frankly, I couldn't move, you know, but I was just stuck on the couch and I looked horrible. You know, I looked, I just, you know, it was just, it was awful. And mm. so it was probably hard. It was, I know it was harder for them to watch that. Right. And to see that in their house for so long that they had it worse than I did. Mm. Yeah. Did you find it challenging to, to sit with, to like watch them go, going through their own experience while you're going through this experience? Um, when I found out that my daughter broke down into tears at school, that was hard. Yeah. You know, when um, she just couldn't kind of keep it together any longer. Mm. And, um, and she's a strong kid. And yeah. she just, you know just outwardly wept at school. Yeah. And I had to talk to her about it afterwards. And that's, somebody had told me, I can't remember who it was, but they were so smart. They said, remember, it's not you that has cancer. It's your family that has cancer. Everybody, mm. you're, this is everybody's deal. Mm. And that was really wise because I, I would definitely be that type of person to go, oh, don't worry, I got this. It's mine. You right, know, right, I would right. definitely be that type of person. Right. But whoever told me that was so wise because it does impact the whole family, period. Right. And when I saw that it was impacting my daughter in such an emotional way, of course, that hurt me. Yeah. You know? And 
my wife has a great coping mechanism because she's, again, the organizer. So she's so practical. Oh, well, we'll just get your medications lined up and we'll just, and here's your doctor's appointments and here you go. And, you know, it's like, yeah. so that's how she copes. Yeah. And again, thank goodness. Right. right. But yeah, you know, it, you know, it, it was, that's probably definitely when I got yeah. the most emotional. Did you find, was it challenging to accept the support around you? Um, Maybe I'm projecting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, you know, again, the support was actually more for my family. Mm. I just had to lay on the couch and heal. Right. Mm. I mean, what else did uh, I, sometimes I got overwhelmed with, um, email, well, really well intended of emails and texts of well wishes and check, Hey, I'm just checking in on you. And I'd get like, like too many of those. Right. And I know that that sounds um, completely ungrateful and a yeah. little dickhead. Like. <laughs> but I think you're allowed to feel however you... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, when, you're, when you're that sick and you can't really respond... Did you feel pressure to respond? A little, and, little bit, but I, you know, yeah. I, I kind of got over that. A little, right, you know, again, right. It was just like, you know, I hope everybody understands I can't get back to them yeah. and thank them and, you know, right. um, yeah. give them an update. Everybody's like, hey, give me an update on what you're... I'm like, I, I yeah. don't have the strength to... Make me feel okay about you I, having maybe, cancer. Maybe that could have been, that could have been <laughs> it, but I, I just couldn't stay on it. So I got a little overwhelmed with that, but like I said, kind of right. put that aside. That's valid as hell. But, you know... You do find communities that do beautiful things that you just didn't expect. My wife's work, who deserves a shout out, Harvard Westlake, their families got together and brought us meals three times a week, every other day for three months. Mm. And these meals weren't for me because I couldn't eat. Mm. They're for my family. Mm. Kept keeping them afloat, keeping right. them from having that extra burden. And right. I was just so touched, you know, every, every other day, somebody would arrive with just this huge thing of food and it was touching. It was really moving. And yeah. again, knowing that that wasn't necessarily for me, that was for the situation. That was the support and the love and right. from the whole thing and the support and the love that my wife has earned and she needed help and it was, it was, it brought out the best in people. It really did. Mm. So I was, I was very, you know, so that was great to observe. Yeah. What was the sort of like process of, was it chemotherapy? Was that? It was daily radiation and chemotherapy. Okay. So I guess I just don't know much mm -hmm. about, so what is so, radiation? Okay. Do you go in a big old box? <laughs> big microwave? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you lay on the table and they make this custom mask for you. It is so cool. <laughs> so there's, um, um, what's that anti-superhero? Venom. Yeah. Okay. It, you, look, you look like Venom. And so what this mask does is it bolts you to the table so that you're in the same position, exact position every single time. So that when they shoot radioactive beams at you, it goes and hits the same place every time. Right. So you're in this mask and you get this, develop this love-hate relationship with this mask. Right. It's been molded <laughs> to your face and you literally get bolted to the table. You hear it go pow, 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 as they're bolting you to the table. Yeah. And then this machine goes around you and is zapping you right in the throat at this really precise thing with just, you know, laser beams of radiation. It's just burning the tumor out. Basically. Can you feel it physically? 
not not while it's going on, Can you but hear afterwards. It? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's kind of spinning around your head right. and everything. Can you hear the lasers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laser beams. Um, <laughs> Getting too sci-fi. Yeah, and it, and it, yeah, exactly. And so it kind of spins around your head. Okay. And then 15 minutes, you're done. So then you get up and that's your daily radiation. Yeah? Okay. So I had to do that every day. Um, so they were relatively short doctor appointments? Very short. And it was a re- very much a routine. It was just like, okay, Show come up. in. They go, hey, Chris, hey. And they get your mask out and bolt you to the table and fire you with laser beams. And then they send you on your way, you know? Right. So I, I, every day, and, and you start off by kind of going, oh, this is no big deal. First week, I, look, I couldn't feel anything. And then the second week, you're like, huh, I'm starting to feel this a little bit. And then about week three, man, it's the inside of your throat is on fire. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it is burning and killing this, this tumor that's inside you. And it's not, yeah. it's just, just wiping out everything that's around it too. Mm. So that's awesome. You know? So it just, yeah. and it peaks at the end of radiation. And so you've got the worst part of it after your radiation is done. That's when it actually like, it sits in your system and sits there and grinds it out and, and mm. everything. So that's awesome. It was a good time. So a lot of pain, man. Um, yes. And then chemotherapy is um, a drug that is sort of designed to uh, to amplify the effects of radiation. So it's an amplifier. Okay. And it um, uh, keeps the tumor from spreading as it just kind of shrinks it and everything. But it takes the uh, effects of the of the radiation and boosts it up. It's like puts it on steroids, right? But it's a chemical thing. So they put it into your veins once a week. And you sit there for four hours and it just mm. kind of drips into your system. And then you just are like, oh my gosh, what is in me? You know, so then you got that. And you get this wonderful thing called chemo brain. And chemo brain just doesn't allow you to think straight. It's just, it's like you're out of it, you know, completely out of it. And um, I had to choose a chemotherapy based off of its side effects. So <laughs> that was always a funny conversation. My, chemo doctor was like, well, you got this shitty option. Well, you got this <laughs> shitty option. Let's talk about your shitty options here. Right. And they were talking about the first option, was, which they go, this is the gold standard. This is what we do. This is what we recommend. And they're going through the side effects and they go, and is likely to cause hearing loss and permanent ringing in the ears. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. What? And they go, yeah, you know, high percentage mm. of that happening. It may not happen, but there's a high percentage of that going to happen. Well. And I guess for most people, like everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders and go, oh, okay, hearing loss, ringing in the ears, whatever. Um, and for me, I was just like, no, I can't do that. So I changed to a different option. And that option just had <laughs> other glorious side effects, which was this amazingly horrible rash all over my face and head and, and everything that was excruciating and... Um, yeah, scarring and just, you know. Yeah. But I was sitting there the entire time going, huh, I can hear. Yeah. So it was the right choice. Right. It, was, it was the right choice. And how long were these procedures going on? It was a little over two months. Wow. Yeah. A little over two months. And are you physically getting weaker? Like, is the cancer also depreciating your health? Um, the fatigue was unbelievable. Yeah. So the treatment saps your energy. Yeah. And obviously you can't eat. Yeah, I just couldn't eat. Yeah. Um, 
which became a concern to the doctors. You know, I just I couldn't get anything down. What do you do to your IV? Um, so I almost got to a point where they're going to do a feeding tube mm-hmm. um, because I was just, you know, I was going on ninth, tenth day without anything, without being able to eat anything. Right. And again, I, it was weird. It was, I, I was in the moment. Of, it wasn't. I didn't even feel hungry, but yeah. I just knew, you know, it's not good for you to not eat for nine Right. Did nine medical days. marijuana ever come up? A lot of people recommended it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people um, said, oh, this will help you get your appetite back and all of those mm-hmm. types of things. And I didn't, I didn't get there. I just I didn't, um, it didn't come up for my doctors. Okay. Um, if that's what you're asking. I don't think the doctors go there. Oh, yeah? I could be wrong, but my doctor sure didn't go there. Mm-hmm. I was a little... I loved my doctors. I thought they were awesome. Yeah. They were fantastic. But I was also a little, um, how do I say, curious, maybe not disappointed about right. how fast they threw prescription drugs at me. Yeah. Oh, you've got pain? Here's oxycodone. Yeah. They just throw it at me. I'm like, oh, wow. I don't really want that. And they go, well, that's, you know, if you hurt, you got to take, you just take this stuff. And I'm like, yeah. I, I don't know, you know? Yeah. And especially now with some of the court cases going on. And- dude. It's and, fucking and, wild. And then, <laughs> so I'm, you know, I did, yeah, I, I, I that is got, crazy that they're like, here's heroin, but like pot, like no, I don't we know don't even that. bring that into the conversation. <laughs> you know, that's not that's up to you to decide. You know, so yeah, I don't think it's part of their kind of routine right. procedure. And so yeah, things got to a point where I, I was, you know, taking some some oxycodone pills, and I yeah. could feel the pull. You feel it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. Wow. Yeah. This is not good, you I, know? Yeah. I have some burns on my leg from a hot cup of tea that I spilled, and I went to the emergency room, and I have, like, opioid addiction in my family and stuff. Uh-huh. And when, when they gave me the Dilaudid, like, and it kicked in, and that was my first opioid, and I was like, I get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this, yeah. this is why people like this. Oh. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's tricky. Yeah. And then they, they threw me some pain pills, and I, I was like, I don't want these around. <laughs> Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but also that, necessary if you're in a lot of pain. I, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things yeah. you know, where, where it's just like, well, you know, I'll, I'll go as long as my threshold. And I've got, I think I got a high threshold for it. I'll go as long as I, and I was like, oh, I got, I just got it. Yeah. And then you take them and you go, oh, wow, this works really good. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the problem. Did um, you watch TV? What? Yeah, I watched way too much cable news, man. Yeah. I, yeah, I was because I couldn't. I, I was. <laughs> I felt felt like a bad human being. I'm like, oh, if I watch any more cable news, I can't handle this because I couldn't read. Um, the chemo brain had me so scrambled. Yeah. Oh yeah, watch TV. Yeah. Thank God the Dodgers were in the playoffs during the time, right. so I was, you know <laughs> watching some baseball. But yeah, I was out. I was out, flat out. Could yeah. not get off the couch. Did you sleep? I slept twenty one hours a day. Word. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that was that was kind of like the thing. So, yeah, yeah. So when did it start to turn around? Hmm. Um. You know, the doctors were really good about telling me what to expect. Mm-hmm. You know, they could tell me like when the symptoms were going to peak, when they were going to start to recede, when I was going to get my energy back, all of those things. Yeah. And so that was really helpful because, because pretty much what they said came, came true, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of, you know, and then I had, um, just before the holiday, I had a, a scan and the tumor, which was the size of 
of almost a billiard ball. It was like bigger than a golf ball, but it was, you know, if you can imagine a billiard ball basically in my neck. Yeah. And then just before the holiday, it shrunk down to a centimeter. So they gave me some indication. Everything was headed in the right direction. Everything was good. Um, and that was actually the first time I actually announced it publicly. I didn't let anybody know really that I was going through throat cancer unless the people were really close to me or obviously knew that I was taking a leave from USC, you know, cause right. I had to take the leave, but I, I didn't let anybody know actually. I don't know why. Yeah. It's just what was my preference, I guess. But once I knew I was on the other side then, and the, so it was right at the new year, right at the, um, in which I kind of knew I would have a full recovery at some time in 2019, and it was actually not too long ago, three weeks ago, three weeks ago that my doctor did, we did another scan and she declared me cancer free, meaning the tumor was gone. Hell yeah. So, so that, you know, that was about the arc. Um, I'm, I'm going to be dealing with the symptoms or the, the, the lasting effects for, I don't know, you know, could be, could be another year, could be, um, a lifetime, but, um, you know, I, I definitely have. Um, still issues with dryness, eating, talking, all of those types of things that will, that I still have to manage, but it's manageable. Yeah. So, you know, I, I cannot complain. And I, I've, I've come out of this so grateful and, um, I'm in such a good spot. So I commemorated it with this and that, uh, helps remind me that like, I've, it's an arm tattoo for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, and and it's um reminds me of gratitude. Yeah, and it also reminds me of how re-energized I am. So that like a year from now, if I forget or anything, then I can check that out. Yeah, um, where'd the design inspiration come from? I just liked it. Yeah. So somebody told me it's a, it's a great combination of feminine and masculine qualities and they go just like you and i go well that's enough for me so i'll take that hell yeah but it means nothing and so i ascribed meaning to it right it commemorates my recovery and it commemorates and reminds me of the power of gratitude and my current source of energy which hopefully if i ever forget it i'll be able to just kind of get reminded by checking this out or reminding myself of it so um yeah it, I got to say, I couldn't be at a better place. So no sour grapes, even though it may have sounded like it while I was describing it to you. Absolutely none. Hell yeah. Do you have like hobbies? Do you have time <laughs> to like garden and shit or something? No. <laughs> Gardening's not in the, in the mix. Um, I do love baseball. I spend way too much time watching baseball. I guess right. we could consider that a hobby. Um, now my daughter plays club soccer. I'm way too into watching her play club soccer Hell yeah. and, and those types of things. Uh, oh gosh, is it going to really be that? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. You know, yeah. I, 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 so it's, I mean, imagine between being a dad and, you know, yeah, my life professor. is full. My yeah. life is full. Um, I certainly wish I could read more, you know, those types of things, but, uh, but, um, uh, you know, it's flat out hobbies. Like, you know, no, I don't get a chance to like go repair motorcycles, you know, <laughs> those types of things. So yeah. I do, you know, I love traveling. Yeah. I get completely rest, restless and, and irritable if I'm not in an airport every three weeks or so. Yeah. So I have to travel. Hell yeah. 
And uh, so call it a hobby if you want, but I just, I got to go. I got to just kind of like do that traveling. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Um, as far as like the world of pop goes right now, mm-hmm. are there things that are sort of like super exciting to you that aren't getting enough attention or just sort of like the state of affairs right now for artists and things? Um, yes. The vaguest question of all time. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let, let me start but by... I think you're in a unique place where you're, you know... Yeah. I just, am. Just, yeah, I, I, I feel... I feel like my, my experience has kind of put me in this, like, very rarefied air. Like, right. this kind of cross-section between, um, you know, future artists and where they might fit into the industry and all of these types of things. And, right. And, and I don't think a whole lot of people have that perspective, and I really value that, that, I, that I've got that sort of, I don't know, perch a little bit uh, on yeah. all this. Here's what I like. Um, the ocean of opportunities and the ocean of music that it says happening, I think is actually really great. I got to be honest, I've never heard better writing, better production, and better music than what I'm hearing now overall. When we take out, when we take a look at the gigantic ocean of yeah. music, I think, Hell yeah. I think the level is incredible, actually. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Completely runs laps around when I was in my prime doing the same thing. It's just an entirely different level. I go back and listen to old records and all these things, and it's like you can't even touch it as to the level now. So that yeah. that to me is like, oh, okay, we're in good shape. Music is 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 got is is that's just such a high level, I guess. So, and and that's cool, man. Yeah, that's and I a love cool to, perspective. I love to see the arc yeah. of it and, and all of those things. A lot of people are like, man, back when. People write, wrote real songs, you know. There's a lot yeah, of yeah. No, no. Um, we wrote a lot of crap, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, there was, there was, but, but I think a lot of that's nostalgia. Yeah, a lot of that is not really sort of putting ourselves back in the shoes of you know. It's like okay, let's really compare apples to apples of right the music we were making when we were 23 and 24, and the music that's happening when they're now 23, 24. It's like not even close. It's it's. I think again, I'm looking at the wide ocean that is music, right. not just sort of the what's limited to a mainstream uh, uh, industry, you know, charts, right? Uh, for example. Um. So, uh, to me, that's really encouraging. And if we keep kind of chipping away and fighting the fight, you know, we might we might actually be able to monetize this you know um, right there's been you know one step forward a step back one step forward a step back kind of thing yeah um i i got i just gotta believe that that the good will win on this i think everybody will believe that if we if we screw the music creators then we all lose right i mean right. then then the, if there's no incentive to write a song then everybody's just gonna go away and everybody loses right so we've yeah. got to take care of the artists i think common sense i think i think will prevail. I, I have faith in that. Right. And I have faith that, that the music creators are now starting to speak with a certain voice that they just can't actually say, we're not going to stand, this is what we need. And I think that that will continue to make an impact. So I'm optimistic. I really am. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's not an industry in that sense where there's millions of dollars any longer, you know, so, but I do want really great music 
to be able to survive. Right. And I know that a lot of artists would be just fine making ends meet and playing the music they want. Yeah. And, you know, that's what they want. Yeah. Nobody, I don't, I don't work with any artists who are like, I want to be millionaires. <laughs> I don't think that's in the, their conversation. Yeah. They just, they're just like, I, I want to make music that's meaningful, that right. reaches people and challenges people. And Yachts wanna... are nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. But if there could be like a robust, like working class artist. Oh, man. And, I, and I'm, I'm optimistic. I don't know quite what that's going to look yeah. like. I have to admit. I, I have to admit. I'm not quite sure exactly how that's going to settle. Right. Um, but like I said, music creators are starting to speak with one voice. Mm. And I think that's what's going to make the difference. That's going to move things to where the, um, the people who, who are um, pushing these tracks out and then getting the revenues back are going to have to respond to it. They're going to have to respond because it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact them. Right. You know? And that's, that's how you actually, uh, you know, for better or for worse, you got to impact their bottom line. Yeah. And so I think that when, once they start feeling it, They'll make some changes. Yeah. He, he says optimistically, you know, <laughs> I hear myself say that and then I just go, come on, man, you're being naive. But I don't uh, No. Yeah. I think there's, I think, I, I think that it's possible. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think also if we're really looking at. Um, I'm listening. I just got to research one thing real quick. Yeah. Current, current popular music is, is going through a, bit of an identity crisis in my own opinion you yeah. know when we actually look at the charts um i think it's kind of interesting and exciting so 2017 was a landmark year 2017 was the year that hip-hop took over from pop as the most prominent um ha- with the most pro- prominence on the billboard charts mm. so that's a big deal right right that transition of of hip-hop overtaking pop and from then you can actually kind of see this um morphing of styles you can kind of see the industry reacting to okay well if if that works in hip-hop then we're going to do this we're going to do this right and you can start to see it um yeah so you do start to see uh things even that you wouldn't expect song form is changing Mm. um uh the occurrence of chorus first is now a huge trend why hip-hop um the lengths of songs are getting shorter why the influence of hip hop? Mm. Um, this is the, by the way, this is my own theory. So I love you know, it. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. So for. yeah, it, it's so you can see that now the business, the industry itself, is actually kind of responding either subconsciously or very consciously right. to this shift. Kind of like, oh well, if that's what the kids want, then we have to do this, this, or that. Right. And I think the really wise person, not me, but the really wise person, could have predicted. Ariana Grande's um, Break Up With Your Boyfriend tune, which is a hip-hop tune, basically. Mm, thank you, Next. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I'm, yeah, it's, uh, but no, it's um, Break Up With Your Boyfriend, I'm Bored. Oh, okay. Is, a, is, is flat out, it's a hip-hop tune. Right. You could have predicted that tune would happen back in 2017. You right. could have predicted, oh, okay, I see the writing on the wall. Things are getting influenced and checked. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I just think that there's this now, this kind of... Um, interesting mixture that's half being driven from the business side, half being driven from the creative side, all of these right. kind of things that could settle into something pretty interesting. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Or not. You know, we'll, we'll see. But I, that's what I'm seeing right now currently is like yeah. this kind of like, huh, 
okay, we got to respond to that. Mm. We have to respond to 2017. That's what I'm saying. Right. Have you ever talked to uh, Jonathan Taplin? I have. Yeah? Yeah. I feel like I just, I read his book a couple years ago on Alex Pacino's recommendation. Yeah, man. Yeah. Move fast and break things. And it just goes right along with the things you're saying about, you know, uh, industry sort of monopolies and duopolies, like undermining the creative working class and things. Yeah. Well, yeah, they always have though. Right. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's, there's no way for me to go, you know, sit there and stomp my feet and go, oh, this is so unfair. Look, it's always happened that there was right. somebody in a desk making a decision. Right. They thought that, you know, was based off of either analytics or trends or whatever, their best decision. Right. This is no different. Yeah. I guess the, I mean. At least I don't see it as right. any different. You know? I think one of the points that he makes in his book is that the gatekeepers sort of in the past would invest directly in artists, like whether it were record companies or whatever. And you don't that's see true. that from Google, Facebook, or Amazon. That is true. You know? Yeah, that's true. But he's a fascinating dude who also yep. speaks very hopefully about the future. Yeah. Like yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he, he can see that it's all one just ginormous kind of clusterfuck that's going to undo <laughs> into something interesting. And I agree. Yeah. I, I definitely agree um, with all those things. Yeah, the investment into art, you know, again, what a confluence of stuff that took place. You know, it's like, all right. Congratulations, artists. You now have the technology to make your own music. Okay, good. That means we don't have to pay for it anymore. Okay, you bring us finished tracks, and then we'll just, you know, exploit the hell out of it. You know, that, right. so it's like that double-edged sword. It's kind of like, isn't this technology great? Oh, shit. Now I can do, oh, I get it. You know, now everybody sees that I have to record my own music. Nobody's going to invest in this. It's yeah. up to me. You yeah. Know? That's cool in the sense that, hey, great news. It's up to you to record your music. Awesome. Right. And then you can look at it from the other lens, which is like, oh, it is up to you. Right. To record your music and deliver a finalized track and they'll just, they'll take it from here. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and probably give you comments and, and steer you into ways that they think would make it really simple. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes. That is what's happening. <laughs> um. Man, that Chris Whitley record that you recommended to me when oh, I met that you. That was a while back, man. It's a while back. I think I, I probably met you when I was like 16 or 17. Yeah. Um, I have to say, that's when I knew you were, you were, uh, you were a special kid. I'm going to use the word kid at that time. You were in high school. Yeah. You came up to me and you were just like, what album do I need to listen to? I was like, wow. I can tell that you're asking this not out of just exercise that if I actually tell you you are going to go listen to this record I can't believe it. you really got my attention with that question <laughs> I remember so specifically because I was on a choir trip in high school the year after that and I was in uh, I was in Austria and uh, you know on the, it was like a high school trip so they put like you know duct tape over the doors or whatever of the kids so that <laughs> okay. you, you couldn't like uh, like leave your uh like hotel room and go into someone else's hotel room at night. Wow. So they had, I also went to a Catholic school, so oh, maybe yeah. that, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's not par for the course. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Authoritarian shit. Anyways, but I, I would sneak out of my rooms in the morning to like go on runs. And so oh. I remember like running through Austria. <laughs> How cool. And listening to this like 
very American sounding record. Yeah. Um, well, not very far from America. How cool. So yeah. good. So it's imprinted. It's that's, that's definitely part yeah. of your memories. Tell yeah. me, what'd you, what'd you like about that? Record? What, what's, so Man, you like the record, right? It I think it's great. I think it's great because, and I don't know as much about the blues as and you do. By the do. way, we're, ta- we're talking about Chris Whitley's record, Dirt Floor, which yeah. is one of my all-time favorite, and yeah. I passed that recommendation on to Mackin. I think it is mind-blowing because, it re- and I don't know as much about um, Delta Blues, certainly, as you do, but as like a casual fan, as someone who's like listening to Robert Johnson and like listening to like blind... Uh, Blind Willie Jefferson and stuff like that. To see him like really sort of like understand that from a guitar arrangement perspective, mm-hmm. but then also have an authentic voice, you know? Um, and so it's, stri- it's completely stri- original. Yeah. Yeah. Like really blows me away. I was like, oh, this guy this is like a real songwriter thing that is who he is. This white guy in the nineties, like writing shit, you know, but is also totally in step with this tradition of what's been happening, you know, and just the two mic, like pink moon thing. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the most sort of earthy real records. Yeah. You can, you can, you can, you can hear the dust in the studio, yeah. you know, it's, it's that type of thing. And I, I, I've always been a sucker for that idea of, yeah. well, I just hit record and that's what came, you know, I love that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, that was a that was an inspirational record for me. When did you hear it? Hmm, probably right when it came out. Did you know him? Did you see him? No, you know my colleague David Poe used to tour with him. Oh, really? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, but I never got to meet him. He passed away too young. Yeah, and uh, so I never got to meet him. Only knew of him, and it was the Village Voice that that put it on its like top ten records of I want to say ninety six or something. So I was like, oh, got to check this out. So I did. And uh, yeah, it, it was definitely a huge impression on me. And I've always been, you know, Chris Whitley, Ray LaMontagne, mm-hmm. you know, th- those guys that have, that have, you can see the direct connection right. from American Roots music to what they do. Right. I, I you know, I, I, f- I felt that I was actually a part of that continuum when yeah. I was performing. So you know, Hell yeah. So. Yeah, I like that that it, it's not just a revivalist record, you know. Right. And it's and it's not like a total overly let's this is going to be contemporary, you yeah. know. That's a hell of a balancing act. How do you yeah. do, you know, yeah. I, I got to give him props for that because yeah. I I never I personally I don't think ever got beyond almost kind of like tribute revivalist things. I I was like really really happy that I could even recreate the vibe of that early music, you right. know. But if I'm going to be real honest with myself, I don't think I ever got to the next step of transforming it, taking it to that other, mm. you know, I, I was, you know, at, at that level. But yeah. that's a hell of a balancing act to kind of do something completely new, completely old, entirely timeless, all at yeah. the same time. It's beautiful. It's really, yeah. really great. No, I got complete respect for artists who are able to pull that off. Is performing something at all that you're interested in at this time in your life? Um, No. Yeah. No. Um, so one of the after effects is I can't sing any longer. Mm. That's a trip. That's yeah. really weird. Because um, uh, the pitch reference in my throat is gone. So mm. I think I'm about to sing a, a pitch and I have no idea what's going to come out of my throat. It's Whoa. weird. you know. So after being able to like match pitch, yeah. 
like like breathing air since I was four years old. This has just not been an issue. Yeah, that's and I can't, be I, I can't sing, so I don't know if that's going to come back or not. Wild. Um, I feel entirely creatively satisfied with the work that I'm doing. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, but I feel just as creatively satisfied by putting the elements together in the pop program, bringing together the faculty, the right students, the right uh, facilities. It's like painting, you know, and I just bring all that together and I, and it's as if I wrote a song mm. or to be honest, a freaking symphony because yeah. it just took so much work, you know? Yeah. So it's a big, I don't want to overdo it, but it's very creative. It's a huge creative outlet Hell yeah. for me to do that. And the projects that I have going on are really scratching my creative creativity itch. And um, I still keep up with my music. I still stay on top of my music. I can still produce music, but the the no, the, I'll just answer it flat out. No, I don't really kind of need to be on stage um, right now. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. That might that might change. But yeah, no, nah, no, nah. hell yeah, yeah. Are there other records that kind of like knocked you on your ass um, that you can remember in your life? Yeah, as he scans his record collection <laughs> um, right over here. Um, there, there's a there's a a few records that I've always noted that when I put it on, I can't help but listen to it from front to end. Yeah, you, you just can't can't listen to a single track from them. I was always a Peter Gabriel fan. Right. So Peter Gabriel's So and Peter Gabriel's Us mm. is like that. I just go track one through track nine. Yeah. And, and I listen to the entire arc of it and the entire experience of it. And um, so I always note those types of records. Um, now I'm stumped. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but the answer is, you know, yeah. Th those records kind of came at me at different points in my development. Right. You know, do you remember the last time it happened? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I got to say that it, you know, it takes a lot for music to get under my skin now these days. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing. If I may, I'll tell you why, because it's almost kind of like an occupational hazard. Right. I get emotionally connected and this music, it gets under my skin with the stuff I work with, with my students. Right. Because I'm part of that creative process in a weird sort of way, you know, yeah. in a, in a, in my own role. Yeah. But I'm invested. I'm personally invested in that, in that music. And that's what I get emotionally connected to. Right. When I hear something on the radio or hear something for the first time, uh, it's like years since like something really reached out and grabbed my attention. Yeah. And the last record yeah, yeah. I can't remember what the record was, but it was a track. It was a Ray, Ray LaMontagne track. And it was circumstantial. It was it was just the right timing. I had got done working at um uh in New York. FedEx guy's gonna ring the doorbell. And should we? Yeah. All right. <laughs> What were we talking about? I think we were talking about oh records that 
Yeah, this was, this, was, this was less of a record. It was just a song, and like I said, it was it was because of the circumstance. Mm. I was working in New York, and we'd been there for a long time, like uh, two weeks. So I was out of sorts because I was just away from home. Mm. And it was not a good two weeks. It was really challenging. I don't know. I don't know why it was, but for some reason, it just was a hard, hard two weeks. But before I got on the plane, I downloaded the latest Ray Lamontine record and put it put it on and dialed up this the first song that came up i think i put it on random shuffle and the first song uh that came up is called new york city's killing me mm. it was just this incredible beautiful song about you know the, the the how hard the city was um from his perspective but i had just lived it for two weeks yeah, and there I am on the plane, and just tears are just streaming down. You know, I'm just like I was just a mess because somebody somewhere just had to kind of like share in my experience at that time, and it happened to be Ray LaMontagne with the city, New York City's killing me. And yeah, I kind of wish that I had more emotional responses to music like that more frequently. Yeah, I feel the same way, oddly. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll cry at the dumbest shit. Dumbest shit. Like it, the apex of a Marvel movie. And I'll be like, fuck, <laughs> Thor. <laughs> and that, then, you know, another, yeah, I hear you, man. I, I, I completely hear you. But, you know, but then I watch, you know, I'm at the senior showcase. Yeah. Great show, I, by the way. Oh, thanks. Um, Again, I'm. I don't do anything except for just like put the conditions together to make it happen. But I know where like these kids started and yeah. where they ended. Yeah. And I see when they all of a sudden light up a room and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sitting over on the side trying to keep it together. It's like, I'm not crying. I'm fine. You know? <laughs> and I might, it's weird. I've always wondered if I'm, if I, if I lose perspective a little bit. Cause it's like, is that a good song? I don't know if that's a good song, but I'm really emotionally attached to it because of the people involved, yeah. because of what I saw them go through, yeah. because it so means so much to me. For sure. So it's it's really interesting. You almost have to put that filter on. It's like, but wait a second. Now, is that actually a good song or not? <laughs> um, and then I guess in the end, I don't overanalyze it because it doesn't matter. At that time, it represents so much to me to that person, to the family, to the audience, whatever, you know, it, 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 at that right moment, it did emotionally do its job. It hit me in the gut. It made me cry. And, you know, yeah, I, that's where, that's where I actually find my being moved emotionally by music, mm. you know? Hell yeah. And, uh, that seems like very pure and. Rad. I guess it is what it is. I'll keep an eye yeah. out for. I mean, what else is music for? You know, right? I'll keep my eye out for commercial re- releases that still hit me that way. Yeah, because I'm sure they're out there. It's just rare. Yeah, you know. Um, but I'll be, you know, I'll listen to whatever you put out, and I'll just be like, oh, "That's pretty good. It's okay." <laughs> you know, I keep it together and everything. Because again, I'm, I'm, uh. I can't say that I'm a, you know, have nothing to do with the songs that you write. You write those songs. 
but I don't know why I feel a part of that story. I guess I feel a part of the story, you know? Of course. And so I get connected. Well, I can say that from my perspective, that going into your office every week for a few years. Yeah. And ironing out songs. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like I actually, as a matter of fact, it's not my job to write the song. That would be overstepping my bounds to like jump in and start co-writing. That's not my job. Mm. Um, my job is to, you know, nudge, cajole, shape, move it forward, you know. Yeah. Coach, I'm a coach in, in that in that regard, but I get way too connected. I mean, and you're like one of you know a few hundred. I feel that way about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's deep. It's extremely rewarding. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's Hell the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my my life is rich in awesome music that moves me. It just rarely gets played, and I rarely get it from the commercial yeah. side of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I just admire the, the hell out of you and the way that you move through the world and well, the way that you've you. lived your life. And you're such an instrumental figure. I think I was talking to Reese Finley about this. And we were just like, this guy has affected our lives way more than anyone else. <laughs> like I think about my literally my entire life right now and everyone that I know and it all, you know, yeah. can be traced back to you doing the work that you do. And so I, I know I'm not alone in, in appreciating that. Boom. So, you know, I thank you. I mean, I, yeah. hear, I hear those kind of things and I'm just like, oh man, I, you know, I guess, you know, I always, I just kind of want to go, well, thank you for letting me be a part of the ride is, is how I feel. Um, so th- thank you for letting me know. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm always humbled to, to hear that kind of stuff. But like I said, I, I, I do feel lucky that I just got, um, yeah, a, a, a seat while while we were going through all yeah. of this, you know, mm. and 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 it's interesting. This the school thing is um, a lovely thing. It's fantastic. I believe in it. I I, I really do believe in education, what you get out of it, and everything. Mm. But the whole four year degree thing is an artificial timetable. And <laughs> I, you know, once once graduation happens, I still like feel this, you know, right, uh, and that's gonna ha- that's gonna stay with me. For you know, and and some of my students choose to 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 stay in contact. Some don't, and that's also that's you know completely perfectly fine. But yeah. man, I love being. I never think of it as like a, a part. Of, the ride has no timetable. The ride has no destination. The ride has no end, because I get to watch you guys then move into the next phase and then the next phase and then the next phase. And if I'm lucky enough, you might call me along the way and go, Hey, so I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And I, you know, give you my opinion. And then I, I'm part of the journey again, you know, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me that I'm found myself so lucky, really lucky. Hell yeah. That's so exciting to hear. And I know that there are more like stops along the path, like exciting quests on the way, man. Yeah. It's it's uh, I've like I said, I feel I've never felt the last time I felt this energized and this inspired was when the pop music program was developed and launched. Uh I I can tell you up front, I'm turning fifty years old this summer and I feel like I'm just getting started. <laughs> and that's a wild feeling. Yeah. To actually like kind of go, wow, I'm turning fifty. All right, let's get going. You know, I I've, I've never it's been a long time since I've had this yeah, kind of energy. So, that's inspiring. Yeah, I'm ready to go, man. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were 23? 
Oh my God, Ari, I was I was clueless. I don't know. Again, I I don't think your listeners have time for this. <laughs> I you know, when I was twenty three, asking uh, for a friend. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, here's 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 what I wish I knew. I wish I knew that the shit that I was going through was was par for the was what was happening. You know, mm-hmm. you, the, the the twent my twenties. And all, and again, I don't want to generalize. I don't want to paint with a huge brush. But at the same time, twenties are a disruptive time. You're discovering mm-hmm. yourself. You're discovering where you fit in. You're discovering all of these things. It's nothing but change, turbulence, insecurity, uncertainty, all of these things. And when I didn't know that that was just like that's what happened, it was completely panic driven. It was completely. Um, uh, oh my God, you know, oh my God. Yeah. You know, and had my older self been able to say, Hey dude, is this what's going to happen? Enjoy the changes, ride this out. You know, it, it kind of, kind of relish in this sort of hanging on by the seat. You'll figure this out. You're going to actually find yourself in and around when you turn 30. Don't worry about it. You know, mm. if somebody could have looked back and told me that, that twenties, particularly 23, is all about instability. And then that would have that would have given me um, at least a moment to sort of exhale and go, okay, I can't. There's nothing I can do about this instability. But at least somebody told me it was it was about being unstable, figuring this out, finding my path, and all of these things. Um, again, without generalizing, it was like. I've seen that 20s are, are that instability, figuring this thing out. 30s, start to kind of actually get your legs underneath you. 40s, you actually get good at what you do. And I'm about to turn 50. And it, it's only been an upward ramp, right? So 50 should be pretty cool. Hell yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was clueless, man. <laughs> Looking back at and it's, and it's funny because you 23, is that why you asked? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, because if, if I were to compare it, you've got your shit so much more together than I did at that particular time. Well, who knows? Right? Right. <laughs> so I think it's all, it's all perception, right? Right, right, right. You know, because at that time I was even working full time. I had a full time job. I was, you know, paying right. bills, all of these things. I, I think I was engaged to be married and married at 24, you know. All these things you may have looked at me and gone, "Wow, that dude got his act together." Right? I did. No, right? Not at all. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. just it wasn't. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was making certain decisions. I was, you know, all of these things that was still to come. You mm-hmm. know. So, and I look at you, and I'm just like, "Oh, that dude knows what he's knows who he is. <laughs> knows, you know, knows knows where he's going. He's he's got his shit together." You know? Hell yeah! I'm gonna. Uh, like bounce just that clip and just listen to it on a loop in my car. <laughs> but I guess it's all like perception, right? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. The, you know, other people, everybody looks like they got their act together and then all inside, none of us do. And, you know, that's, that was that was nice to be reminded of that. Yeah. Chris, you're a prophet, Dude, man. Oh, man. Can't thank you enough. This has been the best. My pleasure. Hell yeah. You're the best. Oh, yeah. Dude, thank you for being so honest and like just opening up and having me in your home. 
and accepting this invitation and have this conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. Heck yeah. Anytime. Word. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Happy Santa. Happy Santa. Happy Santa.